0: Contemporary war is fought not only on the kinetic battlefield, but also in the field of online media, which is arguably as important, if not more so. I'm Dr. Afrat Sofer, and in this episode of Jewish World, a podcast of World Jewish Congress Israel, we will talk about the challenges Israel faces in the realm of public opinion, especially during times of conflict, and on the role of the Jewish diaspora in these efforts, the impact of new media channels like Twitter, Telegram, and TikTok on public opinion, and how our listeners can contribute to shaping the narrative in today's fast-paced media landscape. Our guest today is Gadi Ezra, who has played a pivotal role in shaping and communicating Israel's narrative to the world as Director of Israel's National Public Diplomacy Unit, and is continuing to do so in his current roles among them as an international lecturer and a commentator for Israeli media outlet Relevant. Gadi Ezra, thank you so much for joining us. It's such an honor and a thrill to have you here with us.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Fatin. It's so good uh, to be here with you and uh, thank you for honoring me with this.
0: It truly is, especially at these times, um, excellent to get together and to really learn from your experience, both in the field and in in gaining awareness of the challenges that face us around the world, stemming from what what is going on in Israel. Jewish World, a podcast by the World Jewish Congress, Israel. Connecting Israel to Jewish communities around the world. So let's start by uh, getting to know you a little better, Gadi. You served as director of the National Public Diplomacy Unit Please tell us about your work there and how did you get to work there? What was the journey like? Did you always have an interest in this field? And how does your personal experience in the IDF attribute to the unit's missions?
1: These are a lot of questions um, in one question, but I'll try to answer them as coherently and precisely as possible um, I am uh, a lawyer first and foremost nobody's perfect so my background is legal I, I hold uh, three law degrees from Tel Aviv University and NYU law and I'm currently pursuing my my PhD in uh, in international humanitarian law in Tel Aviv University my interest in uh, in in the info domain or the communication or narrative world um, began a lot of years ago many years ago I'm sorry um, when I have uh, uh, developed an interest about the way the world perceives Israel um, and the way we act um, and the, the attempt that we constantly have to achieve our just causes. I think that by now I, I already gave more than 350 lectures worldwide about the high standards of uh, the IDF uh, in, in, in battle based on my experiences as a Special Forces reservist. As a matter of fact, as we speak right now, I'm still on active reserve duty in this war, and we're getting released tomorrow uh, after uh, around 110 days. And uh, and based on my, on my academic uh, point of view and as a human rights uh, scholar, um, at the end of 2021, I was appointed as the director of the National Public Diplomacy Unit in the Israeli Prime Minister's office just to explain... Uh, to the people who listen to us, what does that mean? So basically, um, under the the Prime Minister's office, there are a few figures uh, who are equivalent to a CEO in the Prime Minister's office. One of them is the head of the National Public Diplomacy Directorate. Uh, This guy is in charge of three different units, units, generally speaking. Uh, the first is the Prime, Minister, Prime Minister's spokesmanship uh, itself. The second is the GPO, uh, the government press office, which everybody knows from the different uh, um, uh, press conferences, etc. You can always see their logo on the left side on the screen. And the heart of the directorate, uh, if, as a matter of fact, the reason why it was created following the Second Lebanon War is the UNIT. The unit was the, the entity that I uh, directed, and the sole purpose of the unit is to synchronize and coordinate the work of all the spokesmanships in the country regarding all of the target audiences that Israel has. And uh, believe it or not, we have more than one. It's not just the international audience, it's also the Israeli audience, the inter-Arab audience the Palestinian, the Iranian, in every subject matter with national importance. So that, that is basically a 25A job. Um, you always have to synchronize and to develop a create uh, and to create a sense of a community basically among the spokesmanships to make them work together under a very coherent directive. So everybody will know what our uh, uh, main talking, po- the national talking points, who speaks, who doesn't speak in Israel? It's sometimes important to 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 determine who doesn't speak, uh, how, when, etc. So everything is is according to a very certain plan. So I, I hope I answered your question. I for, kind of forgot it by now, but. Uh, that that is basically how I view things.
0: Well, you definitely have. And I think what's always great about our conversations, Gadi, and I'm, you know, delighted to call you a friend, is that not only do you have the scholarly knowledge, it's it's one thing to have the scholarly knowledge, and another to be able to communicate it in a way that's um clear, coherent, and kind of relevant to the challenges at hand. And um, Thank you. It, 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 truly, it is. It's. It's. Um, we are really fortunate to have you contribute to this uh, to this um, conversation. Today, we are faced with the Swords of Iron War. What are the challenges that Israel faces most regularly in this field? Of of the you mentioned um, the information domain, and hopefully, we'll be able to go into that more in depth. Um, how do these challenges affect the operation of Israel in these very tense times, such as the current war?
1: Right. So uh, there are a lot of challenges, especially in this war in which everything is basically unprecedented, right? It's like we're seeing things that we haven't seen or experienced before in our nation's history. But if I'll have to, ma- to mention two main challenges, it will be the following. The first is actually a challenge that I uh, argue that we, we always had. Which is not the challenge of Hasbara, all right? I don't think here is an, an unpopular view. I don't think that Israel has a problem with Hasbara. I think it has many advocates and many wonderful people, such as yourself, Ifrad, that can you know uh, sing the the national talking points out of our sleep uh, with no problem uh, and without an Israeli accent, right? Like so we all know the narrative that Israel holds basically. The main challenge is to make sure that all the microphones that Israel has, either the formal or the ones that are not formal, are singing the same song. And this is a major, major challenge because like in every democracy, thank God we are a democracy, we have a lot of entities and each and every one of them has something to say. They have their organizational ego, they have their background, their expertise, So the main challenge, for example, that I faced when I was enrolled is the same one that I'm seeing today as well, Uh, to make sure that the country speaks in one consistent and coherent voice. If you would like to to make an analogy to the kinetic world, the challenge is to move from firing artillery to firing uh, precision guided missiles, right? So we'll take all of the efforts that we have and make sure they're focused and concrete to the specific uh, objective that we want to achieve. The second challenge, I think, regards to the current war more uh, than others. And it is um, the public opinion, especially the younger generation. What we see, you know, the holy grail of the information domain is to know if you have succeeded. Right? If you think about it, it's like security. You don't know, you failed until something happened. And what I constantly see is a tendency to, for example, to uh, choose certain uh, messages, for example, or uh, uh, narratives not necessarily based on research, which is something that uh, also happened during our time. It's happening now, it happened before. We have a long road to go here, but what we're seeing now is um, a very clear and consistent tendency among, among the younger generation in the U.S. and in the Arab world that are less sympathetic, let's call it that way, with the Israeli narrative. Um, this has many reasons. One of them is our tendency to not plan years ahead. Just to name one example. American campuses, a lot of people are surprised right now that we're seeing people at Harvard or other elite institutions, such also my alma mater, right? NYU, people chanting from the river to the sea. And we are frustrated by them not understanding that the river is a very certain river and the sea is a very certain sea. And therefore this is a genocidal call. Now, I have a very, you know, in the paratroopers, I've learned, uh, first of all, to ask myself where I was wrong. Not me as an individual, but as a, as, a, as a way of thinking. And if you look at it, you see that for our adversaries, the US campuses were an arena that they have planned to take over for years. Take over, I mean, like, you know, ideologically. For years, they've played against an empty field in this sense. Um, what we need to do in this regard is, for example, create a task force combined by the Ministry of Education, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the National, the National Security Council, the, the Treasury, a lot of entities needs to work together. And the reason why they don't do it, it's not because they're not smart. It's not because they're not able. It's because we have a very, if, if you would like to think, a very justifiable uh, tendency to see only one year or a few months ahead because we're so overwhelmed with challenges. What we need to do right now is to overcome this tendency and to plan a decade ahead. And now we can take these challenges and create them as to, to make them an opportunity. You see this especially with the Saudis, uh, in the with the Sunni uh, uh, countries. Uh, yes, there is a tendency to support uh, the Palestinian narrative, but as we go towards the end of this war, at some point, it'll be an amazing achievement if we can also make sure that we are integrating the Sunni uh, countries as part of a larger peace process with Israel as well, rather than this uh, uh, that they will be just involved in uh, rehabilitating Gaza as a territory uh, on, it, on its own?
0: I think you've really hit the nail on the head on two points here. Um, first of all is the coordination that the other side have um, been working on. And it seems to me that even in the information domain, there has been a lot of coordination. Um, and on the other hand, um, there's also been, and we've had the privilege to tour the Gulf a little bit together and to see the enormous potential there is in, in stemming from the Abraham Accords and hopefully the, the expansion, where we do have these relationships now. And as you say, and it's very encouraging to hear that we can, in the information domain as well, have a window of opportunity within the messaging sphere. How do you see that panning out? And first of all, if you could address um, the to what extent has there been coordination on the Palestinian side vis-a-vis messaging and the information domain?
1: Look, um, the Palestinians are, are uh, working on the information domain for years. It's one of their uh, main arenas. If you ask the average Palestinian that works uh, in these areas, if you'll get to have a chance to have a coffee with a terrorist from Hamas, for example, uh, he'll tell you that um, one of the, the core ingredients in every act that they, um, that they execute is documenting and making sure that uh, there are very clear messages which are deprived from a very clear strategic goal. Uh, we've seen it on October 7th, uh, they had GoPros on them for a reason. One of their targets was to humiliate the Israeli public and the, the way to do that is to document everything. So there is a reason for everything. In this regard, of course, I'm not glorifying them. They're far from being perfect, but I'm just trying to illustrate the inner logic that they have in this sense. Now we have an inner logic as well, and we have our wins as well, of course, but it's also a game of quantities and volumes, right? So you can have the best microphone in the world, and I can have the best speaker in the world. I have a Frat Sofer to convey my message to the world in fluent English, very articulated. The problem is that when you're talking about public opinion rather than core diplomacy, right? When you're sitting with a diplomat one-on-one and you convince her or him, in public opinion, um, quantities matter. And so when we enter the force buildup uh, phase at some point after this war, we'll have to make sure that we have the capabilities, for example, to, to flood the network with our narrative just the way they do it. Obviously not lying, conveying the truth, because we do have a just cause, but making sure we are uh, succeeding or overcoming the threshold of noise, uh, if, if you would like to call it that way. Another interesting uh, uh, thing we'll have to make sure for days to come is to constantly check ourselves. Let me give you an example for that. So at the beginning of this war, everybody talked about the slogan, Hamas is ISIS, right? Now, because we're living in our own bubble, we we have the tendency to think that things are good or bad because our friends or family like it. And they might say it's genius. And a lot of us, also you and I, when we discussed about this slogan at some point, I think we thought, hey, it makes sense, right? And uh, 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 people in the U.S. administration use it and uh, people in other administration in the world use it, etc. Now, When one asks herself or himself, what is my goal? In the info domain, you understand that convincing diplomats is not the sole target, right? It's also the main audience, let's call it that way. And when we're seeing polls today, what's interesting to learn is that the slogan Hamas is ISIS does not work. It does not work. Now, I'm I'm just trying to think about how many people uh, went on air using the slogan without knowing it's not working, how much money, resources we have invested. And it wasn't necessarily a mistake, but what I'm saying is, is that it's at a certain point we have to check ourselves and, and because it's it's dynamic. It's dynamic. We have to check ourselves and ask, well, it worked for the first four weeks. Perhaps it's not working uh, from the fifth week and on. So... Um, I see there is a there is a genuine attempt to do that also today, uh, but I'm flagging this to you, Efraad, because it's very easy to forget that in times of war. Again, not because people are not talented, but because we are overwhelmed with tasks and missions and the need to convey our message in every way possible. And sometimes the rapidness and the speed uh, takes the you know, uh, takes the stands for, you know, more quality and being precise uh, in this matter. So uh, there are a lot of issues here that uh, we need to make sure we're doing correctly as we go. Um, I can, you know, mention countless examples, but that was just one of them. It's,
0: I think really important to to also you said that we are very very busy we have all been inundated with with tasks and a lot of purpose since October 7th and many of our listeners are in the Jewish diaspora desperate to want to help um, the effort to, to for our people. How can Jewish people in the diaspora help Israel in the war or narrative? is Israel using them as an asset in its media campaign? I mean I I've and we've talked about this before I think in a way other nations are envious almost of the Jewish of the diaspora that we have. What role does the diaspora play in in this conflict?
1: Wow look first of all I think it starts with um with the obligation that every Jew, must have, in my view, uh, outside of Israel, to understand that he or she are part of the project, the Zionist project. Israel is no more mine than it's yours. Uh, just because I'm Israeli, I pay taxes and I serve in the military and reserve duties. As a matter of fact, in fact, like we're friends for years. I don't even know if you're a citizen. So that I don't care. It doesn't matter. We're part of the same shared project, and we're all holding this, this stretcher from a from a different angle. So. It starts with a core understanding that I am part of the project. I'm not volunteering in the project for a very temporary time. This is a war for my home as well. Um, Do we as a country uh, see them as an asset? First of all, I have trouble viewing choosing the diaspora as an asset because it's very uh, utilitarian point of view in this sense it's like uh, assuming that your parents or your siblings are an asset because they can open some doors for you no they're family first and foremost um but uh, do we listen to them enough i think that is the more um accurate uh, way to, that i would ask it at least um i think that we have a long way to go here i know there are genuine attempts these days to improve that, but for years, a lot of Jews in the diaspora felt like they're not part of the Israeli story. In this regard, uh, we are trying, and I'm saying we because I'm not part of the government right now, right? But I'm I'm I'm, I'm speaking broadly right now. I think that the country does uh, try to make a genuine attempt to include and to listen as much as possible, but we still have a long way to go. And it also starts from the other direction towards Israel, meaning uh, to make sure that Israel is not a political issue. It's not a, a partisan issue. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a consensus among us as Jews, and we can have our arguments, of course, and we can agree or disagree about certain political acts that happening in Israel, but never, ever, Forget that uh, th- the core goal is to make sure that we do have a prosperous, uh, a Jewish and democratic nation for all Jews alike. It doesn't. Ma- it doesn't mean that all Jews had to come to Israel, but they do have to see it as part of themselves because Israel needs to see them as part of the Zionist project as a whole.
0: Absolutely, and the I'm and the fact that and I think that's that's really the the crux of the matter where, I mean, you and I, the last time we we met and hung out was at the World Jewish Congress um, unity building visit. In the other um, life. In our other life. And um, before the world changed irrevocably. But I think it was for me, when I think back at that, and it was quite a tense moment in Israel diaspora relations, and even then, it was very much at the core of the World Jewish Congress actions and 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 being in right. to bridge that gap between right. Israel and the di- the diaspora. And never more has it been so important. And it 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 is family, and it is it's almost like that kind of chasm melted away after October seventh, and really it is. And and maybe later on, we'll be able to to talk a little bit more about a, a, a simple checklist, maybe, that, that people, uh, that our listeners could um, look at when wanting to contribute to our common destiny in a way. I, I know it sounds a bit grandiose, but it, it, it's, it really is. It it's can't not. Be. It, it's yeah. not.
1: Just the way I don't think it's naive to think that, you know, every Jew should see Israel uh, sh- should see him or herself part of the Zionist project. I don't think it's naive just because it's romantic. It doesn't mean it's naive. Um, but um, yeah, absolutely. we can we can go uh, uh, and talk about certain uh, um, parts in, in such a checklist, but uh, whenever you're ready, I'm ready for as always.
0: Fab. So um, <laughs> something that <laughs> maybe we'll we'll do that when we wrap up. But-
1: absolutely. You're listening to
0: Jewish world. By the World Jewish Congress, Israel. Back to you. You are currently a commentator and an advisor for Relevant, as well as I have to tell our listeners is that you are a contributor to Time magazine and various other international publications. So you really have your finger on the pulse of the international discourse. So you're involved with Relevant, which is a new private Israeli online outlet. What's the difference between the things you do now and the ones you've done in Israel's public service? And which, if I can be a bit cheeky, which job do you prefer?
1: <laughs> well, I'm sure that if you'll ask my wife, the answer is pretty clear. <laughs> um, th- the main difference is that now I eat and sleep as well. But uh, try not to answer that too politically. Look, both jobs are great, both positions are great, both positions enable me to 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 make my voice heard and my opinion uh heard and make a true impact at uh, the national public diplomacy unit i was in charge of of crafting the, the national policy in the information domain and that's not just spokesmanship it's it's a lot of disciplines within the information domain it's also strategic communications and i'm not going to go into each discipline so um the people who listen to us won't fall asleep but um, I, I genuinely felt uh, that I tr- I'm truly making an impact and contributing to my country now um, I am I'm, I'm getting a, a very respectable stage to express my opinion to make an impact I'm talking about the issues that interest me which are usually uh, uh, um Uh, diplomatic issues, national security, sometimes as well, not all the time, sometimes legal, it really depends on what's going on. And, uh, you know, knowing that you have a professional home, for example, especially these days, while while I'm on reserve duty, that always awaits for you and uh, is welcoming you uh, when you're coming back and you're entering a studio and everyone is welcoming and and really nice, uh, that, you know, that makes the world. I'm very grateful for that. I'm very happy in both positions. But as I said at the beginning, now I sleep more, not too much, uh, but I sleep a bit more and uh, and I eat a bit more. But if you're considering the threshold that I had in the prime minister's office, it's not a, a hard threshold to pass.
0: And do you think that, do you feel to what extent can private initiatives and private media channels help to move public opinion in favor of
1: Israel? Absolutely. Uh, Look, the the way people consume, the way people shape their ideas is mainly through the media. It's one of the most powerful resources known to mankind. And I'm not trying to uh, exaggerate, but I truly believe this is the truth. Uh, Now, it really depends on which media outlet you're consuming your information from, obviously. Uh, I'm always trying to be associated with outlets that uh, you know are very professional, objective, etc. And I'm very happy that they see my views as relevant as well. You got the joke, right? And the core challenge uh, here, in in my view, is is to first of all develop a personal opinion on as a person that wants to express my views on a certain. Uh, thing that happening in in the you know in the horizon, et cetera, and then choose the relevant outlet to consume the message from, because what a lot of people do, they go to the newspapers or the channels that their parents watch. And you know one of the things that relevant the channel that uh, they try to do is to address the younger generation that consume uh, media through the phones. Not necessarily through TV, they are being broadcasted in TV, but the the app of relevant is the main thing. So, but it also takes a lot of a lot of work from the side of, of you know the customers in this sense to be open to new methods and way of consuming information. Um, and I think once one asks his or herself, what are the topics that interest me? And what is the outlet? That is suitable for me in order to develop my opinions based on my very busy schedule, I think you discover that you can invest very little time and get a lot of assets from the uh, specific media outlet that you're gaining. Otherwise, you can find yourself in front of the TV for hours and hours, and then after four hours, asking yourself, hey, what what have I learned? And the answer is usually, not something dramatic. So it's not just consume the media, but also ask myself how and when and from who I want to consume that knowledge.
0: And we've seen this come to life during the current war. We've seen a lot of responses condemning Israel in the wider media, which sometimes even translates to anti-Semitism. Why is this happening? And why does world opinion and more specifically the opinion of regular citizens around the world, rather than their governments which most by and large have been supportive straight after October 7th why does it have such an importance to israel
1: look it happens because of many reasons um, i'll say this i think you always you'll always have the 10% that are going to be with you no matter what and you're always going to have the 10% who are going to be against you no matter what and in the middle you have 80% who are blessed with ignorance and you know those 80% when they open uh, their phones for example and they constantly read or hear or view a certain narrative because again as said this is a war of quantities as well Um, they tend to shape their opinion based on that narrative and it's not because they're easy to play it's because we are creatures who tend to develop our opinion based on the things we sense with our senses around us Um, Israel understands that it has a major challenge. I think one of the reasons it still happens, despite the fact we see that as a challenge, is because sometimes in certain areas of life, we haven't translated that to concrete plan, uh, plans, strategic plans on how to tackle this. So every Israeli could have told you five years ago that it's important that the future of American leadership in American elite academic institutions, would like us. Everyone could say that, right? But from that point to a point in which the government, as a very complicated entity, says, "All right, we have a strategic challenge. We're trans- translating that to a ten-year-long plan to tackle that challenge." There's a lot of distance to go, right? So, I said at the beginning, it's not because people don't care. I think people were overwhelmed. And sometimes yes, it's because uh, uh, we had, I would say, not the right people at the right time. Sometimes, but I think that that is not the custom; it's the exception. Generally speaking, the vast majority of people I've encountered with in this field are professional. They're smart. They're intelligent. What they need sometimes is to someone to come and says, "Hey, I'm getting you all together. I'm gathering you all together, and I'm forcing you." to think outside of your bubble, I'm forcing, for example, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs to think outside of you know, the diplomatic uh, bubble, I'm forcing the military to think outside of the military bubble, I'm forcing the police to think outside of the police bubble. And it's not because you're smart, it's because you have the advantage to be an, a, an outsider, right? And once you do that, you see the brilliant, brilliant offers that people on the table brings you don't need to do anything you just need to give people the right space to think outside of the box and they will surprise you on how intelligent and engaging they are and i think we don't have spaces like that enough because again we're very very busy on the everyday mission so as much as we will have Entities within the government that forces us to think outside of the box, like we see, for example, in high-tech or in the intelligence corps. And I know it's weird to talk about intelligence corps after the failure of October 7th, but still, these mechanisms are very important. So going very specific to the information domain, you have so many actors, Zafra, just to get you into numbers, all right? You know, Operation Breaking Dawn, August 2022. Uh, we were the one coordinating the the info domain for the country for all for all target audiences we had over 20 different agencies 20 different agencies simultaneously around one table again everyone with uh uh, his own organizational ego everybody knows the best and in israel everyone is a chief of staff and everyone is the head of the police and everyone knows like everything right and that's part of the beauty of israelness if you would like to to call it that way but uh, uh, once you let people encounter with each other, you see that someone from a very specific uh, organization says to someone from another organization, "Hey, that, that is great. Why won't you think about this and this and this?" And and the person who, who is so invested in his or her way of thinking, all of a sudden is like has has his or her eureka moment. So creating these mechanisms that forces you to think outside of the box again, it's crucial. It's important. And I think that uh, if we were to be smart enough to create as many mechanisms uh, as these after October 7th, it's going to be a pure gain for the country.
0: Absolutely. It's creating that place of brutally honest self-awareness in a way where they leave the organizational ego outside the door and are able to have a proper soul search in in the name of progressing in the name of our homeland and
1: if what, you see you have you have summarized something that i talked about for 7 minutes in two sentences this is the proof we don't have a problem with us you see
0: <laughs> well you, you articulated it in <laughs> in detail <laughs> and it's Something that we are sadly facing in the diaspora is the rise of anti-Semitism following, um, following the atrocities of October seventh. And I'm wondering how the relationship between anti-Zionist backlash and anti-rise of anti-Semitism. I mean, um, to me, it's one and the same. But how is Israel facing the challenge of the relationship between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism?
1: I think that it was in the very beginning of the war that the national talking points, I think I saw it there, talked about the link between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. I think it's very clear now that there is a direct link between the two. Um, it wasn't for granted. It wasn't understandable among many people in the government um, that anti-Semitism experienced by Jews overseas is is it's also an Israeli matter. It's not just the problem of you know the Jews over there, right? Uh, and something that we can just deal with uh, uh, their governments. It's an Israeli problem, um, and uh, and you know you you uh, you talked about seeing diaspora Jews as an asset. And now I would like to adopt uh, this t- terminology for, for a second. I think what's interesting, I have a lot of, you know, I was very blessed to have people uh, from pretty much every corner of the world that I'm friends with in, in different Jewish communities. And what's interesting, what's striking to me time and again is that their insights about stuff that's happening in their territory will always be more accurate and relevant than the ones that us uh, Israeli officials will convey back home. It doesn't matter if you are a terrific ambassador somewhere, and I'm not talking about a specific ambassador, God forbid, right? Right? I'm saying it doesn't matter if you are specific it it you cannot replace that with the knowledge and the know-how of someone who grew up in London and knows the sensitivities and the nuances etc and I think that we've we're starting to to understand more and more is that there is a need to not just see diaspora Jews as people that we call when we have an emergency and, and tell them, hey, you should say this and this, these are the messages that we have crafted because we are so brilliant but rather also use their knowledge and know-how as people who are not just smart, but people who are just embedded in their communities and have the best know-how on what's going on. If you'd like to translate that to a military terminology as intel sources, right? As people who can really give you the most accurate assessment of what's going on on the ground. Um, When I was in office, I have tried to uh, apply this philosophy. Uh, We did have genuine attempts to do that. Unfortunately, I finished my tenure in January, so we couldn't develop that. Uh, I know there were uh, uh, honest uh, attempts to to do uh, things like that uh, after I left. But um, do I think they're sufficient? The answer is no. Do I think we have a long way to go? The answer is hell yes. And I
0: think what you say really does ring true. I mean, I've seen in my own experiences on, on, on dialogues I've had, for example, on Iran, where the, opinion, uh, the opinions of experts, of Jewish Iran experts, say, from outside of Israel, yeah. uh, when they have a dialogue with Iran Israeli Iran experts inside of Israel, even that dialogue is such a meaningful one where even experts who are, who are studying exactly one country and its proxies the emphasis that's placed from where one is sitting is extraordinary and can add so much value and can really again you're you're getting a sympathetic perspective from someone who's sitting in a very different direction and right. there's only gain to be had from that yeah and um so if, if I can veer a little bit off off script now, Gadi, um, absolutely. If we can talk about the day after and what what is is a matter that's really near and dear to our hearts is relations with our other Arab countries in right in the neighborhood, the start of which Israel uh, is the UAE, Bahrain, hopefully Saudi Arabia one day. How does one use messaging to win over and to connect with the Arab street? The Gulf, for example. How would one go about it?
1: When I went to NYU, I was always always taught to say, this is a great question, but this is really a great question. So look, Hasbara um, is a mean. It's not a goal. It's supposed to serve something larger. And as we continue to refuse to discuss the day after, we couldn't we we wouldn't be able to craft a current um, effective communication plan because we don't know the goals. We don't know what we want to achieve. Now, um, the problems with us not planning the day after are not just concentrated with the info domain, of course. It has a lot of other meanings, it impacts our relations with the Americans, it impacts our relations with the Saudis, the Emiratis. It has the immense potential potential of creating an Oslo 2.0 reality in Gaza. For example, if you ask a lot of Israelis, what was the main failure or some of the failures of Oslo was that it uh, ignored some of the incitement some of the incitement that is uh, happening in the Palestinian uh, uh, society. And, you know, in every society we have incitement, of course, but, you know, uh, reality dictated that we're trying to negotiate with the Palestinians and not the Norwegians, okay? So, um, if you read the Oslo court, you see that uh, there weren't any solutions created to deal with those mechanisms, with these hate mechanisms with the fact that every single square is named after a jihadist, for example, right? Now, if we refuse to talk about the day after and include programs, for example, of de-radicalization, you know, following World War II, they call it denazification. Now we're saying de-radicalization. If we fail to do that, my fear is that we will find ourselves in a reality similar to what we are experiencing, you know, in Judea and Samaria, when the right is frustrated by the fact we're not annexing, and the left is frustrated by the fact that there are settlements, okay? You know that also was uh, became a nickname for stagnation, which contains the bad from every corner, okay? So my fear is that if we don't craft the day after and it's okay to go with a right-wing philosophy and it's okay to go with a left-wing philosophy, but we need to decide where we want to go. But if we don't do that, we we might remain in a reality in which we control the territory from a security point of view, but we are in control of a people in which in vast numbers don't like us, to say the least right? And that will force us to a stagnation similar to what we are experiencing in Judea and Samaria, um, in a way that, um, makes a reality in which our kids and our grandkids are living in a safe, uh, uh, um, state of mind. Let's call it that way. Very far. Now, uh, Going down from floor 96, in which I was at right now, to floor two, talking about communication. Um, look, there are wonderful things that can be done here. Uh, if we were to decide, for example, that we see the Saudis as part of the day after. Let me get you into numbers, if want, for a second. Mm-hmm. The, in, in, certain, in recent polls, what we see is that the numbers of Saudis who are supporting of the Palestinian narrative following the war has doubled before the war. Doubled. Many believe in the Arab world, and I'm not stating my personal opinion, I'm quoting a research by the Arab Center for Research and Study, I think that's the accurate name, uh, placed in Qatar, 8,000 participants for 16 one six different countries, only 5% of the people who were asked and participated in the survey sees October 7th atrocities as an illegitimate attack. Now we need to ask ourselves some hard questions. How did that happen? And it's not because the world is stupid. And it's not because uh, the world was born uh, evil. It's because they were exposed to certain views and certain agendas, and it's our responsibility if we want to change that to make sure that they are exposed to a more balanced narrative, more accurate narrative, more just narrative. If we understand that the Saudis, for example, are part of the day after, then we can craft a very concrete, actionable plan to change those numbers. And hey, you can actually measure the success because you have polls at the moment. But Going back to the beginning of your terrific questions. If we don't have a concrete strategic plan for the day after, we cannot craft a communication info plan from that. We cannot know if we should focus on the Saudis, the Emiratis, the Americans, the Palestinians. There is countless, there are countless actions that can be done. We just need to be focused.
0: It's and in a way going back to the beginning of our framing of the war is that the framing of the piece should be in, in thought of as in exactly a strategic way. And one wonders, one wonders to what extent when we are in dialogue with any given government, the um, information domain, sh- domain should be part and parcel of that strategy. Um, it's been interesting. I, I have some Saudi friends who... I've connected with, they're very intelligent, they're engaged with the world. And once October 7th happened, the stuff that comes out on the Instagram feed, and I don't think it's necessarily um, done on purpose, but it is blatantly anti Israeli, anti Semitic. It's based on, um, I think, very well established entrenched ideas. Where given enough information, if we're being hopeful and dreaming over here, is that that can be shifted given a proper strategy.
1: I absolutely agree. Look, uh, I'm the last one to, you need to convince on that. I think the information domain is no less important or lethal from the kinetic domain. We need to see it uh, that way. I think that, and I know the military has made a huge, huge progress in this regard, uh, that you know, in every kinetic operation that you have, you also need to make sure and to take into account the information aspects and how you deal with them, uh, which aspects will be you know, uh, um, Israeli formal and which won't, for example. Look, it's part of the gradual process that we're having. The fact that you and I, Frat, are talking in the terminology of infodomain and not asbara and not spokesmanships embodies the progress because it's not just crafting messages to the media. And it's not just, um, uh, you know, making statements or speeches um, every night at 8 p.m. It's understanding that there is an entire narrative that surrounds people and the way to shape it and influence it in order for people to consume that narrative is very, very uh, uh, mixed and um, once the country sees that, and I think we're going there as a strategic tool, then more resources will be developed and and devoted to that. And as a result, you'll see you'll see more people engaging uh, in these realities. Again, just to get you into numbers and to exemplify the long road that we need to make. So we are we have talked about the inter Arab world. Um, quite a few in this uh, discussion that we have, Ifat. And one would assume, you know, if we had an alien listen to our conversation, the alien would say, well, this is one of the the major arenas that this country named Israel has. It must have an army of spokespersons in Arabic, right? Well, the fact is that the formal formal state of Israel has only five spokesmen's in the Arab language. They're all doing wonderful job, but they're just five. I'm talking about the spokesman of the prime minister, the spokesman of the IDF, Kogat, the spokesman of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the spokesman of the the police. These are the only five entities in Israel that conveying formal messages to the inter-Arab world. So once you understand that the info domain is no less important than the kinetic domain, then you decide to uh, make concrete plans to enlarge the numbers of these spokesmen uh, to educate more people on the Arabic language because in Arabic culture, because it's not just knowing the language, it's being familiar with the culture, of course, right? Um, and you create mechanisms that will allow you to convey the most accurate message, not from a patronizing point of view, but from a vector or a point of view that the person who sees or hears your message says, well, there might be something here. I might have been taught something different all of my life, but now I'm hoping to hear something new. Now, some people might hear us right now and think I'm naive. I won't uh, think that uh, they don't have the right to to be wrong. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm standing behind my words here. I've practiced through that and I've seen the potential. There is a true change that can happen here. As, and as said in almost every answer that I'm providing you, if not, we just need to decide we're doing that. I can testify on my modest time in office that we have genuinely tried to do we had a lot of successes we had a lot of failures but unfortunately it was only one year and these things takes a lot of time we're talking about 10 15 years sometimes to build a true mechanism that is going to be efficient and sufficient as said we have a long way to go we just need to decide we're making the first step
0: and from what you say, I think you really did manage to pack in a lot of activity and a lot of infrastructure building, even within the year that you were in office. You really have gone kind of above and beyond what anyone else would have achieved in, in a year. Now, if we go back. We
1: can finish the interview here. <laughs> no, <I'm joking.
0: laughs> One more question. We're almost done. All right. All right.
1: I cannot refuse to. Okay.
0: <laughs> if we go back down to the first floor um and to give a checklist of tips for our listeners who want to get and get to be engaged within social media and um the more tangible information domain what could our listeners do when sharing information when wanting to contribute
1: i'll say very brief because we've have, we've have talked for a long time now uh three major things, or f- three concrete things. Number one, consume your information from formal sources only. Um, the Israeli agencies are doing above and beyond in this war to convey formal messages. Daniela Gari, the IDF spokesman, uh, did a tremendous job so far um, and it doesn't take a lot for one to to get his messages right. All you need to do is open the TV at the evening or log into the IDF's Telegram channel. Um, uh, for this uh, matter, uh, the second is actually the second tip is actually the reason for why I give the first tip is to understand that um, certain entities would always try to play us. And that we are also targets in the info domain, and while soldiers and civilians as well are targets in the kinetic domain by terrorist organizations, all of us, uh, you, me, the people that are in the studio right now. We are all targets uh, by you know certain entities with an agenda that tries to shape our opinion. It was the Shinbet that has revealed just a few days ago, I think, that um, the Iranians. Um, which you uh, uh passionately uh, uh, research all the time. um the Iranians have created fake telegram groups in Hebrew in order to shift the Israeli sentiment to pressure the government more and it's it's out there. it's it's clear, everybody knows that, but once we're getting concrete examples, it's like, all right, I I am truly. Uh, a target here for a lot of entities. So understanding that, and this means that you have to be skeptical regarding everything that you read. I'm not saying being too paranoid, of course, but just develop a healthy sense of skepticism in this regard. Don't buy anything that you read. Always ask yourself, uh, is there a hidden agenda here? And if you would like to get something more concrete, As said in tip number one, go to the formal entities. And the last thing I would like to say, Fat, is this. A lot of people think that uh, just because they're one person, they don't have an impact. Uh, They couldn't be more wrong. It takes one post sometimes or one video to convince the right people. The holy grail of the information domain is to understand when you have succeeded. You know, I had a talk once that I gave in which uh, someone from a Jewish organization Uh, said at the Q&A section that she's very frustrated by the Facebook account of her organization because every time she posts something she gets only 200 likes while her uh, competitor gets like 15,000 etc. And my reply was, well who is your target audience? And she couldn't reply that. And the reason I've asked that is because if my target audience is only you know five people in the UN Security Council for example uh, then I need to convince five people. I don't need to convince 5,000 people. Now, obviously, the target of, of, of you know, everyday people like myself uh, is not to convince the UN Security Council. And if I'm sharing a post, I'm I'm you know, just expressing my honest opinion without a strategic plan behind it. Not when I'm not in office, of course. But um, again, you'll be surprised to, to see uh, who view the videos or who reads the posts you're sending and what kind of impact it can, it can do. You know, they say it it takes only six people to get to the US president in the info domain. It can be sometimes one or two. And if you're conveying a very precise message, you can make a true impact. So stand for your rights, but also for your opinion and don't be embarrassed to express them. Uh, do it with respect, do it uh, in an articulated way, be precise, But do it.
0: Gadi Ezra, former director of Israel's National Public Diplomacy Unit, international lecturer and commentator for Israeli media outlet Relevant. Thank you so much for joining us and enlightening us on Israel's battle within the information domain.
1: Thank you, Efrat. It was my true honor.
0: Thank you for listening to Jewish World, a podcast of World Jewish Congress Israel. Please tune in to our next podcast coming out soon. Jewish World, a podcast by the World Jewish Congress Israel. Jewish World is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon and more. Subscribe for updates on new episodes.